My guest today is the Senior Associate Dean of Degree Programs at the Jones Graduate School of Business at Rice University. Please welcome Barbara Austick. Barbara, how's it going? Great, thank you. Good to see you, Rodolfo. All right, good to see you too. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, no problem at all. All right, so let's jump right into this. What do you do? What do I do? What a great question. <laughs> I guess I'll start with my title and then we'll go from there. All right. I am the Senior Associate Dean of Degree Programs at the Jones Graduate School of Business, Rice University. So what I do is worry about, think about, work on the programs that we offer, the courses that we pull together and put out there for our students to engage with. So I worry about uh, both what we teach and how we teach it, who teaches it, when we teach it, <laughs> all of those things. And so a lot of my focus is in the classroom. But being at a business school, we're kind of a mini university where we really focus on the full life cycle of the student and all elements. So the curriculum is only part of that. I also worry about admitting the students, who we're attracting, who we're admitting, placement of the students, what their career opportunities are. Are we helping them achieve their hopes and dreams in the way that we would like to? So there's also wrapped around what happens in the classroom is worrying about the co-curricular opportunities for the students and the extracurricular. So I have 60 people in the organization just in the degree programs organization at the Jones School. So in terms of what I do, worrying about <laughs> leading, helping them succeed, those 60 people, that's a big part of it. And then of course I work with the faculty on uh, course development and delivery, the students, alumni, companies outside. It is much more varied than I ever would have imagined. And uh, it's incredibly enjoyable and challenging, particularly in the current environment. Wow, that's a lot. So everything from curriculum development, human resources, student placement, faculty development, facilities management, all of that. What about fundraising? Is that part of it as well? You know, I have the opportunity mm -hmm. to participate in that some. It's not one of my primary responsibilities, but certainly if there's an overlap with something that we hope to accomplish in the degree programs and something that interests a donor, then I'm very happy to come in and make the case and be part of the team that helps to convert that donation. Okay, sounds good. And now... Prior to this, I believe you were a professor, a finance professor. How did, how did this all come about? How did you get in? Did you always want to get, in, get into education? How did this all work out? Uh, that's a great question. You know the old saying that look before you leap? <laughs> I left before I looked. And I had worked in portfolio management, actually, right out of my undergraduate, which mm -hmm. was in Nebraska. And my focus in my undergraduate was in international affairs with a business minor 
I loved finance and I ended up becoming a portfolio manager. That was actually a great position in terms of drawing on the liberal arts education that I had. My international affairs major was focused on political science and economics and history. And then with the business minor, I threw in enough finance and accounting that I could keep up, I guess, on the analysis side. When I was a portfolio manager, I ended up getting my chartered financial analyst designation. And that truly was a big part of my education as an analyst and, and portfolio manager. Through that, the chartered financial analyst program, which is pretty in-depth, it's a three-year program, you take one test a year, and the body of knowledge is pretty incredible. It really just whetted my appetite for more. This is where the leaping before looking part comes in. I was going to get my MBA, and because of my interest in international and in economics, I had my eye on Columbia, and my plan was to get my MBA at Columbia, and they also had a master's in international affairs, so I was going to do a joint degree at Columbia. These are plans I'm making from Lincoln, Nebraska. And as I look further, and this is also a long time ago, over 30 years ago, I know that's hard to believe. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking at this from Lincoln, Nebraska, and when I start to run the numbers, I think that oh, there's no way that I can quit working for, I think the joint degree is going to take me three years, maybe. No way that I can quit working for three years right. and take on this student debt, and I, I can't do this. So I started looking at alternatives, and alternative was to get a PhD in finance. Uh, instead. And with PhDs, you get a stipend, so you do quit working, but at least there's a little bit of money coming in to pay the bills and to put food on the table, and you typically don't pay tuition. This isn't always the case, but often the case. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll just get my PhD in finance instead. And I really had no idea what the difference was between a PhD and I'm like, yeah, it's just another year, you know, just a little bit more. And really, it's an entirely different endeavor versus the MBA or this joint degree that I was looking at. In the end, it worked out really well, and um, I don't have any complaints. But that first year, I was like, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? And I think one of the things that might be interesting for, for your purposes here is that Ultimately, the reason I shifted from the MBA to the PhD in finance is because I could not conceive of how I could ever make enough money to pay off the loans I would have to take to get my degree. Mm -hmm. And I, I just didn't have an appreciation for the types of jobs that I would be able to get if I made that investment in myself. I just had no, no, no perspective no sense of what I would be able to do with an MBA in that, in that case. Now, I also had no sense of what I could do with a PhD in mm. finance besides become a professor, and I didn't understand the human capital, that uh, what it would take to build right. that human capital. Um, and like I say, it, it turned out fine, but I wish I would have made a more purposeful and informed decision. Yeah, okay. Well, you accidentally got a PhD, but I... <laughs> but it's worked out very well, as you can see. So, all right. So you, you ended up being a professor, and now you're the senior associate dean of, of degree programs. What was that transition like? I guess, one, the transition to going to teaching, 
And then from there, that transition going from teaching to where you are now. Yeah. So these days, when I was getting my PhD and started at Rice, I completed in the PhD in four years, which at the time was, was just starting to change. And now, as a matter of fact, a PhD, and probably in, in most technical degrees, actually, frankly, in most degrees, so even if you're writing a book in history or something like that, you're, you're really talking about five, six years to make that investment. So then you, you start as an assistant professor, and I began my professor career at Rice. Never imagined I would, I would still be here 27 years later, but I'm delighted to still be here. And it is a probably heard the term publish or perish. So if you're at a research institution, right out of the gate, you need to focus on your research contributions and you need to perform it in the classroom. So developing that, the course materials, figuring out your style as a teacher, um, what works for you, what works for the material that you, you know, the content and the approach combination is a big deal. And then getting that research agenda going is a big deal. So the life of an assistant professor is, you know, you think that when you've graduated with your PhD, it's kind of like, you know, you made it. And then you realize, oh my gosh, I've got another big, I've got now another six year chunk basically to uh, prove myself at this, at this institution. Once that's happened, then most universities, and it's not all just separated like this, there's more of an evolution through time. But certainly what universities are looking for are individuals who contribute on those two fronts, on research, on building new knowledge, on adding to our deep intellectual understanding of the way the world works, being able to translate that and communicate that and bring that into the classroom, but then also service. So they refer to it as the three-legged stool in academia, teaching, research, and service. I was always have been very interested in, in service. I think part of this, you know, being a professor is interesting because you have an opportunity. You spend a lot of time typically in your office, staring at your computer, writing. If you're in the humanities, you might be writing that book. If you're in many other fields, you're doing some sort of empirical analysis, staring at your computer. If you're a scientist in a lab, you're in the lab looking under the microscope or working with your postdocs who are doing that. A lot of the work on the, on the research side is pretty solitary. And then you come out every once in a while and you go into the classroom with a bunch of students who are all looking at you. <laughs> and, and there's certainly interaction, but it's also of a different, of a different nature. So I think part of my interest in service from the beginning was driven by a desire to interact with others, Okay. Uh, you know, to make something happen, that I really enjoyed collaboration. I really enjoyed working with people. And so there was a gap for me that I didn't have and wasn't fulfilled in quite the same way through the research and teaching sides of the jobs. So, so service typically means big service is referred to as institution building. There's a lot of service that faculty do that's more just daily operations and oversight. And universities care a lot about faculty governance. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this notion that it's the tenured faculty that are responsible for maintaining an institution to go into the future and that they've got an obligation for this oversight and governance. So a lot of services on, on that dimension. So 
what are we doing and how are we doing it on a daily basis? And then there's what's referred to as institution building, which is more that I've I've been involved with in the last uh, seven years. Certainly there's a lot of the day-to-day stuff, but okay, what's next? What do we want to do to expand our footprint and to, in essence, be all that we can be for the world that we inhabit? So what can we do as a business school? What do we, where do we want to be? What do we want to be doing? So because of the service I had done as a professor, people knew that I had an interest. Maybe I demonstrated some abilities to work in that fashion. And so I was given the opportunity seven years ago to join the dean's office and take my contributions to the next level and join the team to take the school to the next level. Yeah. Great. Seven years. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned that one of the surprises for you was that it just was a lot more varied than you thought. So any other surprises for you when you got in? Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So I mentioned that being a professor was a little bit solitary. Mm -hmm. And professors are really different sort of job. First of all, one of the best things about it is that every day, pretty much every day, you decide how you spend that day. Mm. You decide what you're going to think about. Now, you know, you might be scheduled to teach but you have a lot of discretion over what you teach. You certainly have discretion over when you teach it. You have a lot of discretion over how you teach it. So I know that I need to go in and teach a portfolio management class, but that's pretty much, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's as far as I'm constrained. Right. So a typical day of a professor, I think it has to be one of the most flexible and self-determined jobs ever. You decide how you spend your time and how you use your human capital on a daily basis. And that is is really a luxury. It's different in the dean's office <laughs> and in the administration. And what I realized very quickly is that, so how old was I? Somewhere close to 50 when I joined the dean's office. And I realized that even though I had been a working professional for 30 years, I had you know, counting my portfolio management days in there. I had never had a budget bigger than my research account, which isn't very large. And I had never had any direct reports. So I never had to do performance reviews. I had never had to hire or fire someone. Now we have faculty reviews and we have to hire new professors and we make promotion and tenure decisions, but that's very different from a regular staff role in that sense. So I quickly realized that, you know, where are all the emails and meetings come from? Uh, when you have a budget and you have a bunch of people working for you, it, there are a lot of meetings and a lot of, a lot of emails. So I had to do two things. One, I really quickly had to understand what I didn't know, right. what I didn't have experience with. And two, I had to be willing to ask for a lot of help. Mm-hmm. That's great. So... You knew the managerial part of it was something that I guess you didn't have as much experience on. And in other areas where you, you felt like it might not be your strengths, you didn't shy away from it. You went out and figured out what you needed to do to strengthen that. Yeah, exactly. I really tried to. And if I'm going to be vulnerable here, and I'll say that that is one of the first lessons I had was getting comfortable with, with being vulnerable and that that was a strength and not a weakness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And I can remember the first time that I felt like what I really need to do here is share my insecurity, not cover up my insecurity. 
And I share my insecurity, you know, we've got a chance of making this happen the way it should happen. And if instead I kind of armor up and try to fake my way through this, this is, it's not going to be pretty. Right. <laughs> All right. And it, you mentioned 60. I think you were talking about just the faculty in your office. Yeah, the 60, those are the staff and the degree programs. So okay. we actually have just in the offices that support our different MBA programs, the Masters of Accounting program, in those offices, we have 60 staff. Okay, wow. Now, what about total number of faculty and students and courses? Do you know yeah. those numbers? Well, you know what? I have a bunch of <laughs> I've recently had to do a bit of a retrospective on what I've been doing with my life. <laughs> <laughs> So I can tell you, so 60 professionals, we have in the neighborhood of 60 full-time faculty, okay. and then another 30 part-time faculty. This academic year, we will offer 135 sections of 80 core classes, courses that are required in the MBA, and over 200 sections of 133 electives. And that's just in our MBA program on our on-campus programs. Um, one of the things that we've added, one of the, the big items that I've focused on in the last few years turned out to be good timing. That was the introduction of our online MBA, MBA at Rice. Mm -hmm. And that was an entirely different level of administrative undertaking, mm -hmm. in large part because it was the first online degree for Rice University. So it was all sorts of new things, and we needed to bring everyone along, starting with the Jones School faculty, to really understand that not only was it something that we should do, but something that we could do. And yeah. it was very consistent with our mission and who we are, and that we had the capability to do it really well. And then to actually implement the thing required just an unprecedented amount of collaboration across the university, getting comfortable with a very different modality. And it's actually built around a team teaching model. So that was a stretch for everyone. So I would say that it was a good thing <laughs> that I had like the four years experience ahead of that mm -hmm. to get better at those things, to get better at leading change, to get better at the management aspects and to develop that humility and vulnerability that I didn't have all the answers and I didn't need to have all the answers. I needed right. to know how to pull people together to make it happen. It's a good thing that I, I didn't have to do this first year in the job. Right, you're right. Well, that's great going from- Oh, you asked about, ask about students. Oh yeah, students also. Um, this is a really good number too, so I gotta be sure to share that. When I started this position, we've gone from seven years ago, we had 850 students enrolled and now we have 1,400. Wow. So you went from a time where you weren't sure you're going to do MBA program or PhD to now being the senior associate dean of degree programs over 1,400 students, 60 full-time faculty, 30 part-time, 80 core courses, core courses, 135 electives. That's great. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned earlier you're talking about a typical day of teachers. What about for, for yourself, what you're doing now? What does a typical day look like for you? One of the things I've learned over the years is that... I need to protect time to actually get work done. And uh, in the early years, I let my calendar get completely blocked up and I'd get to the end of the day and I'd realize that 
you know, I committed to doing a bunch of things, but then the next day I just had more meetings that were going to commit me to do more things and I needed to have some time to, to do. Actually, I learned two things. I needed to really be careful about what I actually did and what someone else should be doing. And then I needed to protect time for, for those things that it, that it really was important for me to do. So my typical day now, if, it's a, if, I've, if I've done it right, I have a good three to four hours that's unscheduled that I, I'm both uh, that I'm thinking <laughs> and I'm thoughtfully doing rather than just firing off emails and, and putting out fires. And then the other five to, to six hours, I'm doing a lot of meetings, a lot of emails, the famous quadrant, you know, that you're really trying to spend your time on the important and stay away from just the urgent. Um, and certainly the urgent and, and pride to not uh, get, get sucked into the unimportant but urgent. Right. And that's a constant battle. I think it is for most professionals. Uh, and particularly if you can get the little um, dopamine hit by taking care of a problem right now, then, <laughs> and then you realize that, oh, I took care of a bunch of teeny tiny little problems, but I still have this big thing hanging out <laughs> over here that, that I've either avoided or I just haven't made the time to, to tackle. So, and this was even the case before, before Zoom meetings, you know, there's, there's a lot of, because we're, we try to work in a collaborative environment, there are a lot of meetings to allow that collaboration. I really value time with students. I value time with alumni, such as yourself. And I also think it's important for me to stay, and, and this oftentimes is, is through alumni and our, our fully employed students in our professional and executive program. It helps me not only be in touch with what we're doing as a program, but it also keeps me connected to the current business environment. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of interactions are, are important to keep me relevant with what's going on and what we should be doing. Yeah. Okay. All right. And now you mentioned, and I, I think of this as a skill set, but you mentioned being vulnerable. And this is a, a position that you have to do so much. You have to wear so many hats. So I feel like you have to be that. You have to be vulnerable because there's no way that you can know all that you do and all that you touch. So that's definitely, I feel like, a, a skill set that you need. What other skill sets and characteristics do you think are most important to be successful in your line of business? I think effectively communicating, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean, thank goodness, as you can tell, doesn't necessarily mean being smooth and, and uh, never stumbling over your words and that sort of thing, but being an effective communicator in terms of getting to the point and I think having authenticity in your communication so that you're that you're trusted so that actually um, it might be interesting to share you asked me about where I took it as my typical day you know over the last couple of years we've had a lot of atypical days right. <laughs> and the this issue of communication was something that I did not fully appreciate before coming into this job and before entering some of these crisis environments and that the how important it is to not only be striving to make the right decisions, but to communicate around those decisions, why you're making those decisions, and that, you know, just, again, that authenticity in terms of what you're doing and why. 
So what I'm thinking of right now is a situation. We had 120 of our professional students in Santiago a year ago when Chile had the civil unrest and state of emergency. So I was not actually down there. I had intended to go and uh, at the last minute wasn't able to go. Uh, so it, it was worse, to, frankly, to be up here with 120 students, two faculty, two staff members, and Dean Rodriguez and I, ultimately the communication had to come from the two of us around the decision-making around that crisis. And, and that was ranging from, do we airlift essentially 120 students out of Santiago to what do they really have to do? For, they were down the for a course, right? So there were deliverables, there was, they're going to get grades, all these things, you know, so we're, we're going from the sorts of decisions from, okay, do we need to airlift them out of Santiago to, okay, what kind of assignment do they have to do? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the range of decision-making was interesting. And frankly, the communication around it, across 120 students, there was a great deal of interest in all of those things and, and why we were making the decisions we were what was really feeding into that and helping them feel comfortable that we really understood their situation and their, their perspective. So communication is a skill set that, and I think oftentimes when people hear the term communication, they think of it in terms of how smoothly you speak or how good are your PowerPoint slides or something. And that, that could definitely add to it. But ultimately it's about effectively sharing what needs to be shared. And yeah. I think that brings in a lot of other attributes. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's see, communication, another one that related to the Santiago as well. And, and so you have different, different time frames and different, different scopes, but decision-making and truly the ability to just pull the trigger and make a decision. As a professor, there's a lot of analysis and there is very little decision-making. Uh, in my, my first year in, the, in this uh, job, I was speaking with an executive coach who was working with one of my staff, and I was sharing with him this notion, this, you know, like, I, you know, I'm just so many decisions, <laughs> and uh, he coached me to give myself some leeway and to recognize that if I make 80% of the decisions are, that I make are, are good decisions, I'm going to be incredibly successful. And that in a position like this, you're making so many decisions that you can't hold yourself to expect 100% of the time you're going to make the right decision. And that actually was really important. I thought about that several times in the early years to say, all right, I need to make a decision. Best decision I can right now. I need to recognize that it, of the decisions I make today, they're not all going to be right. <laughs> but if most of them are, we'll be okay. Right. At least you made them. Yes. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. And then, you, so your steps at the way you got to where you are, you got your PhD in finance, you became a professor, and then you moved up. Is that a typical route for people in your position? Yeah, it definitely is. It's interesting. This happens both in you know, universities broadly, also in medical centers. I mentioned the fact that I hadn't had a budget to speak of, I hadn't had direct reports, I hadn't done hiring, firing, and here I am at you know nearly 50 years old coming into this leadership role with all of those things needing to be done and hadn't had the experience, 
hadn't worked up to that, up some corporate ladder or natural progression. And I think it is an interesting feature of universities and medical institutions where the experts are put into the management role without necessarily having the management training. We see this in our professional executive programs where we'll have folks coming in who have great technical expertise and they're being tapped to come over, even in, you know, even in energy companies, right, or drug companies where you have the scientists or the engineers, they're being tapped to move over and they don't necessarily have the, the experience um, like I didn't have or the training to, to do that. So I took a pretty typical path for academia. Okay. All right. And can you talk about what you love, about what you do? I know you, you mentioned earlier your desire to interact with others. Just talk about, in general, what you love about what you do. Sure. I think, first and foremost, we're privileged to the people that entrust us with the development of their human capital over this period. And young people are fantastic. And we do have young, now as I get older and older, we do have young people in our MBA programs, but they're also experienced professionals. So that's a real treat too, to interact with, with adults who are seeking to change and improve the options that are available to them. So interacting with adults who have chosen to come back and invest in their human capital, get their master's degree. It's a very special group of people. There's a lot of selection bias going there to make them very interesting, engaging, energetic, People. And that, so that's a treat to be able to interact with our students. I really enjoy. I love the luxury that we have in academia to think deeply about really important things and to interact with a lot of smart people across the faculty and, and with our students, interact around those really important things. And then I also, I mentioned earlier the little dopamine hit when you solve yeah. a problem. I really like solving problems. And in research, you're typically solving really big problems that take a long, long time to solve. So you don't get that dopamine hit very often. In this job, I like it when I say faculty, staff, student brings me a problem. And I like, ah, I gotcha. I can do this. <laughs> uh, you can take care of that. That is a solvable problem. And solve that problem and, and help any of those faculty, staff, or students make things end the way they should. That's a good feeling. Good. Nice. I like it. Now, what about on the flip side? I know you mentioned everything that's going on now with COVID, and it's definitely a challenge, especially in the education field. But what other challenges or obstacles are out there for you, or what keeps you up at night? So I've started to think a lot more about business and society and business as an agent of change. I think that we are in this situation already, but in part, the pandemic has laid bare all sorts of issues in social justice, things along both racial and gender lines that I think we're in a position to see some major changes there. So one of the challenges I think we have, business schools in general, the Jones School, is how do we want to be involved in that? How can we be an agent of change? Um, if business is an agent of change, business schools have to be an agent of change. Yeah. All right. Now, can you talk about any memorable moments that you've had over your career? Memorable moments. <clears throat> wow. 
there's probably a mix of moments between something like seeing the light bulb go on with a student in the classroom when they get it, when they see what you're talking about and, you know, kind of capture the the power of, of what it is. They haven't just gotten the knowledge or the information, but it's like, ah, they get it. So there's some professionally some moments like that. There's the, on the research side, you know, when your light bulb goes off and, and uh, you know, you realize maybe with the collaborator that, hey, we have just figured out something pretty cool here and we're on to something and this is going to work. And then you can see right then, you know that you're going to get, you know, what they call an APUB, which is a publication in one of the top three, four journals in your field. This is an APUB. So there's that sort of moment that is good. And then I think just my long tenure at Rice University, there are a lot of, if not, you know, standout memorable moments. The, the entire, the, the tapestry of it all has really been wonderful. That yeah. The students, the faculty, the alumni, the, the people that come through that university, it's a rich tapestry of experiences and perspectives and personalities and been privileged to be part of that yeah it's home to you yeah some years yeah all right well barbara we're at the end of this interview i want to get to this quick hitter session this is where i'll be asking fun questions for you to get people to know you a little bit better but before i do that though i want to see is there anything additional that you would like to discuss or anything you think i might have left off asking you i don't all right well let's go to these quick hitter questions all right, you should have warned me. Uh, <laughs> First question, what's your favorite sports team? Astros. All right. Still, still. Okay. <laughs> favorite movie or show? Ooh, movie or show. Uh, man, this is supposed to be fast. Uh, and it's fine. Doesn't really need that to be fast. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that's tough. Okay, so I'm going to move back away from uh, favorite to uh, most recently impactful. Okay, um, that works. I watched with my middle son, who's been home during the pandemic, I watched the series, My Brilliant Friend, which is um, based on a book by an Italian author. And the whole series was just so good mm. and focused on post-World War II Italy. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of the working class in Europe at that time. And it was just incredibly well done series. All right. My brilliant friend. I'll check it out. Favorite musical artist or group? Musical artist or group? Um, I am going to, I'm going to go with the Mumford and Son. Okay. Mumford and Sons. Just, yeah, I, <laughs> I find myself going to them often. I love the gravelly Irish accent. Yeah. All right. I like it. Favorite vacation spot? Mm. Right now, you know, anywhere. <laughs> I would love yeah. <laughs> during, during pandemic, I would, I, I would love to get out. Uh, I am a hiker, so really anywhere interesting where I can get in good hiking, but ideally after a really good day of hiking, I'd come back to a really nice meal and a nice glass of wine. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. And last, favorite food or drink? Ah, favorite food or drink. We had a family Zoom call 
Uh, and one of the activities was, you know, 10 foods that you just, you would take with you no matter what. And uh, at the top of my list was avocado. Oh, I love yeah. avocados. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> All right. Well, Barbara, this has been great. 27 years at Rice. It's unbelievable. The seven years in the dean's office. It's awesome. One, I want to say good luck to you on the new online degree program, but Congrats on all that you've done. Congrats on all your achievements. And it's just great that all you've done for all these students, now it's up to 1,400 students right now, but all the students that you've helped along the way, it's amazing the job you've done. So congrats to you and thank you for coming on to this podcast. Thank you. And I, I love what you are doing and that your vision for this is spot on. I think you're doing a really great thing and you're doing it really well. Oh, thank you. That, that means a lot. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.